was a big influence. Not that I was ever even thinking about entrepreneurial stuff in high school by any yeah. means, but that idea of, hey, like don't just try to skate by with the bare minimum. If you're gonna do something, put your all behind it and Welcome to the Raw and Real podcast. Are you dreaming of changing your life through opening a business? Or are you curious what obstacles entrepreneurs had to overcome on their journey? Then you're in the right place. My name is Agnes Billig and I'm your host. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Raw and Real. Today's guest on the show is Rajiv Nathan. He's the founder of Startup Hypeman, a company that helps startups to develop their pitch and story so that they can raise capital and get customers. Besides that, he's also a yoga teacher and rap artist. Hey, Rajiv, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to, to be on your show. Yeah, I'm excited to dive into your story. So I'm first really curious to get to know more about you as you live currently in Chicago and your parents are Indian. So can you tell us a little bit about the values, how you were raised and how that influenced your current perspective? Wow. Coming in deep with that first question. Okay. So let me think of how to answer this. First generation American. So my parents moved from India after they got married. So my, I have an older brother who's three years older. So the two of us are first generation Americans. And I think that's a vastly different experience than people who are, you know, I guess you're more traditional, quote unquote, American your Caucasian family who's been here for, you know, for centuries, that kind of thing, or even just second generation. So I think what's interesting is you grow up with a kind of a different, a different perspective than the people around you. Dif different you, know, how? you asked about, well, you know, so you asked about like values, right? So you're kind of interestingly like growing up living this dual lifestyle where you're being raised to preserve the culture your parents grew up in, while also trying to integrate into the culture you live in. And so it creates interesting, sometimes it merges beautifully, other times it creates interesting clashes. And I think I'm going to have it so much easier being born and raised in America, and most likely raising kids in America versus I, I think back to how my parents did it. And I'm just like, how? <laughs> how did they come to a brand new country? They were learning it while they were raising kids in it and they did it really well. You know, like my dad learned how to, he learned baseball. He learned how to play catch with me. It didn't happen often, it happened a couple of times, but, uh, you know, like my mom watched basketball games with us growing up, like all those things that they didn't do when they were kids. And, you know, they figured out all the rules of these sports, but that's what I'm saying. Like there are nice mergers and there's interesting clashes at times where you're, you're growing up trying to figure out your own identity kind of on an everyday basis, um, right around the time when, you know, you start to develop personality and your peer group starts to figure out how the world is working. So like, it doesn't really like impact you and you're like five years old. But then as you start to get to like, eight, nine, 10, into high school, that's when everyone is, is aware of the world. And then so you start to become acutely aware of the differences between each other, because sometimes they're called out to you directly. Other times you notice, oh, my family does things this way. That's different than how they do things. So it is a really, it was a really interesting upbringing. I had to deal with a lot of prejudice along the way, even, and even like casual prejudice from friends, which today the term for that would be a microaggression. Mm -hmm. At what, the time there was. What yeah. kind of prejudice? Can you give us some examples? Um, in the sense of like, 
you know, there were instances growing up where, for example, so like there was a baseball team that I was on growing up. One of the guys on my team, like when we were on the bench, like waiting to bat, he would just always be like, so what's the deal with this Ganesh God I hear about? Like, what's the deal with this elephant thing and four arm, you know, like that kind of stuff and not asking in a curious way, but in like a pejorative way. Um, that's one example. Another is, you know, your friends like to talk in an Indian accent sometimes in your direction because they think mm-hmm. it's fun and funny to do that. Mm-hmm. So those are all things that today we would call microaggressions. At the time, we didn't have that word. And you just kind of thought it was part of growing up because you don't know any better as a kid. So there is multiple times where you're trying to reconcile your own identity against itself. And these are all things I didn't like tell my parents about because truthfully, I don't think I wanted them to know I was in any degree like hurting or suffering. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, I didn't want them to be like, well, you can't hang out with these friends anymore. Right. I didn't want them to have a bad impression of the people I was hanging out with. And I don't want to paint the picture that it was like 100% bad all the time. It's just like, these are like pockets of things that come up, but that you don't realize until years later, like, oh man, that did affect me (laughs) in a certain way. So that's how I like, I I paint my upbringing. But on my parents' side specifically, coming back to your original question of the values, I think what we had that was good was like strong family and a big family too. So I think this notion of like doing things as a family came up a lot. You know, I have cousins who lived in like, you know, within 20 miles of each other, two different families of cousins. And, you know, we would frequently like all get together for dinners um, on weekends. And you have this sort of like built in mentality as a result of doing things for more than just yourself. Mm -hmm. Like it's less of like, I'm this rogue person on my own, you know, because I had some friends who were, it was just kind of like, yeah, I don't like, we don't really talk to that cousin because we don't like them. It doesn't really happen in Indian culture. Even if you don't like them, you still like put up with them and deal with them and talk to them. And I think that's kind of what separates family from everything else is Mm -hmm. if they weren't related to you and it's like, if they weren't related to you, you probably wouldn't hang out with some of them, but that still doesn't matter because they're your family. And I think that's kind of what was instilled. In addition to that, you know, my dad was very much like kind of drilled into me and my brother, the value of education and doing good in school. And it worked, you know, I I actually, so my brother was able to like skate through high school, like just, he didn't have to put in much effort and he got really good grades. I had to put in a lot more effort and got a little bit worse grades because I just don't think certain things came as naturally to me. Communication stuff came natural, English class, writing, right? That was natural. History was natural. You know, I enjoyed math, but it took more effort for me to get calculus right or to get pre-algebra right or algebra right than it would my brother. And my dad is a chemical engineer. So he, like, I had the best tutor growing up too. So I got to, you know, if I had a homework question, I think about some of my friends who couldn't just turn to their dad or their mom and be like, can you help me figure this out? Whereas my dad, not that he's doing algebra every day by any means, but it's kind of built into his brain to think like that. So he would just like flip through the first couple of pages of that lesson in the textbook Mm -hmm. and be like, okay, so here's how we need to think about this. Mm -hmm. And he wouldn't let me leave that kitchen table. So it was like, here's how it would work. Let's say I had a, question on one of the homework problems we were doing. I'd come to him with that question. He'd figure out, he'd figure it out. He would show me how to do it. Then he would say, okay, now do this same thing, but without my help. And I would do that. And he'd say, okay, now I'm going to create a brand new problem for you. And you have to do that 
without my help. And it wasn't until I could do the brand new problem he created without his help that I could leave the kitchen table. Because he was trying to, I didn't realize at the time, what he was trying to do is get me to realize how do you actually learn something? It's not just like, you're not going to learn this if you just regurgitate what I just did for you. I need to know that you can think critically about this and figure out how to come to an answer. And that is probably one of the biggest things today that I still carry with me. Do you think that also influenced you to start an entrepreneurial career? In a way, probably. I think the influence comes more in having some inherent like mental capacity to endure. I don't know, truthfully, until you just brought that up. I don't know if I had thought of that myself. But now that you say that, probably. I think the way my dad helped me think about the world and how to tackle problems was a big influence. Not that I was ever even thinking about entrepreneurial stuff in high school by any means, but that idea of, hey, like, don't just try to skate by with the bare minimum. If you're going to do something, put your all behind it and don't just know the fringe amount. Mm -hmm. Get like a really deep amount of knowledge around it so that you are able to adapt figure things out when they don't go exactly as planned, et cetera, which is all, you know, I guess that's all what entrepreneurship is. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, you started out your career in sales. And then at some point you started your first company, Idea Lemon, as a side project with a friend. So can you walk us a little bit through the process of how that happened and the moment also you decided to go fully into it? I don't think it was ever on my mind to start a business, like, or seriously anyway. So I was a marketing major in college. And I thought my destiny, which I had fully bought into myself, was I'm going to rise the ranks at like a marketing or advertising agency, like a Starcom worldwide, and ultimately be like the CMO. That was my, like, what I was like, that's the path I want to follow. I actually remember, I think I created a Twitter account in 2010. And initially, my, my first idea for what the Twitter handle username should be was going to be at CMO by 30. Now, in retrospect, (laughs) how conceited, and I'm so glad I didn't, (laughs) but I do remember having that thought. So, you know, I worked at that digital marketing agency for a few years, first on like the account management, then on the sales side. And while I was there, one of my friends from college, he had graduated a year before me. And when we were in college, we had together, we had started the marketing club at our university. Uh, And we built something really cool there. Like we, took this thing from scratch, got it to a pretty decent sized membership, and then ended up like entering like sample case study competitions and ultimately like getting like national recognition. And aside from the social aspect, we really liked like having something cool to work on together that wasn't mandated by school. It was something that we chose to do. So we were like casually keeping in touch after he graduated and then after I graduated. And what we found was that aside from our job, there wasn't this area of like learning we could go to anymore. Mm-hmm. And so we were like, well, how do we just like create an environment where we can learn things that sound cool and interesting? And that was when we started Idea Lemon as that side project, which was initially just hosting monthly small events. I should say the other thing we realized too, was aside from not having a space to learn outside from our work, was that we just found that all the networking events where you meet people were all kind of the same and they were getting annoying. And it was just like, 
hundreds of people. It's a race to pass out as many business cards as you can. No deep conversation, no really getting to know people. It's all the same, you know, three questions. So that's when we said, okay, let's just try and throw our own events. And so we did. We threw these smaller scale events. There were somewhere between like 10 and 30 people. But we would center each event around a specific topic mm-hmm. that we thought was interesting or that we thought people wanted to learn about. And that was ideal. I mean, for like a solid, I don't know, six to eight months, maybe more than that. And then what we noticed was that people who were coming to this, we noticed a couple of things. One, from the mat, from the big networking events, we all we noticed previously that everyone asks, what do you do? And no one really has a good answer. <laughs> <laughs> and most people like hate getting that question. We noticed at our events, people were getting asked, what do you do? But we also noticed we were structuring these events in a way where, so it would be, the format was like, we'd have a speaker talk on the topic. And it was everything from social media marketing to meditation mm-hmm. to the homelessness issue to having great workplace culture. So we really like ran the gambit. And the speaker would talk. And then after that, we would break people into small groups and pose some discussion questions. After that, we would bring everyone back together and be like, okay, what, what came up in your mini conversations? And people loved that. And we found that people who had just met each other were getting to know the other person better than you know, someone they had known for years. Yeah. So with these elements coming together, we said, like, how do we tackle this better? And we had also, through doing this, started to build out our own personal brands. And we kind of noticed like, hey, here are, the, here are the things people are, here are the commonalities, regardless of what kind of event we do, here are the commonalities that we see happening. So then we said, let's start teaching workshops that sort of have to do with personal branding. But specifically, it was about like, hey, what's your elevator pitch? What's your personal elevator pitch? And so the seedlings were in place from the events we were doing, but really the catalyst for it was the company that I was still working at. We had our annual retreat. And they showed us the Simon Sinek TED Talk, the Golden Circle Start With Why video. And I can't speak to everyone else at the company, but that hit me like a lightning bolt. We watched that. I was like, oh my God, this, like, this helps me like, make sense of everything now. And so it, there are very few things I will say like have radically shifted the way I think or see the world. And that was one of them. Okay, wow. So I, we saw that, or I saw that rather, came back from Detroit where the company meeting was. And I was like, Martin, my, uh, my co-founder for Ideal Lemon, I was like, you got to watch this. You got to watch this. <laughs> and so then he watched it and he was, his mind was blown too. And so we were like, okay, how do we figure out our own why? So we started going through this like question and answer exercise, just like not anything structured, but we we're just like, eh, well, well, tell me anything about this. Well, tell me about this, right? That kind of thing. And ultimately we got to like a version of our own why, how, and what, which was that Simon Sinek structure. And when we found it for ourselves, it was like a second bolt of lightning. Like, oh my God, this makes, now everything makes more sense at a personal level. And then we're like, we got to take this to other people. (laughs) So uh, what is your why then? My why, which it was not fully developed at the time. I, I didn't know it, but knowing now it was not fully developed at the time. But my why now, and I would say permanently, is a fundamental belief in the power of expression. Like I believe that everyone deserves to express themselves. And how do you play a role in it then? My how is how I play the role in it, which is storytelling. 
when I look at everything I have ever like really cared about and the things that I, without having to think about it, get interested in and choose to get involved in, it all comes back to some element of storytelling. And then ultimately at a deep rooted level in the name of expression. So, you know, now my business today is Startup Hype Man, which is working with startups to help them develop their voice through their sales and marketing communication, right? It is literally helping them figure out how do they tell their story so that they can express themselves in the way that's going to resonate with their audience. As you mentioned in my introduction, I teach yoga as well. The first time I took a yoga class, I don't know, four or five years ago, like halfway through, I was like, oh my God, wait, I think I like this because I can see there's like a, a natural arc here of how we're doing these poses and then coming down from that arc at the end. It really felt like a, a plot line unfolding. And yoga is this practice of like expression, like physical expression. So then when I became a teacher, the way I, I think about constructing classes is how do I compose the story of this to help people express themselves? Uh, and then, you know, the rap music as well, which is, you know, music is a form of storytelling on its own. And that's me being able to express myself. And hopefully those who hear my songs can find a little bit of themselves in it and feel they can express themselves. And overall, how has figuring out your why personally affected your life? I don't even know if I could quantify that, but deeply, I guess, and significantly, it has impacted my life. Uh, like I mentioned before, it kind of changed how I, it was almost like I had like a foggy lens on before and then the lens yeah. got wiped after that. Because uh -huh. again, right, it, it helps me make sense of the decisions I've made in my life, why I've chosen to get into certain things, why I've chosen to not get involved in other things. And then on top of that, why, if there are times where I felt like uncomfortable or like I wasn't doing the right thing, why was that the case? Because it was out of alignment with my why. And uh, how did you help people during the workshops to figure out their own why? So this is back during Idea Lemon. It started out with like, a little bit more like free-flowing thing. Like we had a mini presentation about like the philosophy and then we would do a mock like Q&A exercise with each other and then we'd be like, okay, now all of you in the room, pair up with each other and ask them questions like this. See where you get with them. Take notes on what they're saying. And we'd have them do that for like 30 minutes. Then we'd, when we regrouped, and it was kind of similar to how we were doing those events. Speak, let people talk in mini groups, bring it back. And when we came back to the large group, we would pick a couple of people and be like, okay, what'd you come up with? And then we would just help them navigate it from there and be like, okay, so it sounds like your why is this. Does that sound accurate? Like, oh my God, that does sound like exactly like me. So we, it just took a few iterations to revise it over time. You know, at first we were doing like 15, 20 person workshops that were like 90 minutes long. And then what we did was we, we shifted it a little bit and we were like, okay, max five people are allowed. This is going to be three hours long. And instead of, I don't know, 20 bucks, we're going to charge like 80 bucks to do this. And what we did, and the difference we did then was everyone in the room got a dedicated 30 to 40 minutes where we were their question prober. And we were, we had a big whiteboard we were writing their answers down on. And we got so good at figuring out people's why. I mean, I haven't done it in a while, so I'm probably a little bit rusty now, yeah. but I can tell you, I'm still pretty good at being able to get to know someone a little bit and figure out their why. Actually, you know, you're familiar with uh, with Masterclass, like the streaming platform. Uh, no. Um, it's basically think of like Netflix only for learning things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. From like industry experts. 
So the last few weeks, I've been watching um, Chris Voss's masterclass on negotiating. And he used to be an FBI hostage negotiator. So yeah, he I'm, teaches, I'm right? Yeah. yeah, he has never split the difference or settled the difference. So he has a masterclass on that. At the very end, the final lesson, he just, just to tie it all together, he just tells a story of like the importance of negotiation to him. And he just tells a story from childhood of like being bullied and how he felt so like powerless in that moment. And he got really emotional about it. And I'm not kidding. I, I, jot, I just pulled it up on my phone here. I jotted down at the time, Chris Voss's why, how, what, just from hearing that one story. And obviously, I haven't corroborated with him because I don't know him. But what I, what I felt it drilled down to is that Chris Voss, his why is he believes everyone deserves to feel protected. His how, he protects others by using communication to create safe environments. His what? Well, he's a master hostage negotiator and author of Never Split the Difference and principal mm -hmm. of Black Swan Group, right? And that was from like, I watched an entire masterclass, but only a five-minute segment at the very yeah. end was I like, oh, this is his why, how, what? Yeah. And what were the questions that you ask people to discuss during workshops that should help them figure it out a bit better? So again, we started like trying any kind of question and then through each iteration, we were like, hey, this, this question seems to work pretty well. Let's keep asking that. So we kind of, we got it down to like a top 10. I don't recall all those top 10 off the, off the top of my head, but some of them included what is a memory you have from high school or college that every time you think about it, it makes you smile. And then like some of the follow-ups to that are like, okay, why that memory and not other memories? Uh, who else was involved? You know, and, and the goal here is we're getting people to tell us a story with the question. Like none of the questions were yes, no answers. Mm -hmm. They all had to describe something. Yeah. Another question was, if you had three extra hours in the day, how would you spend your time? And you're like, you're not allowed to say like sleep and, and assume that like you don't have like the obligations of life holding you down. There was one that was, what's something you have not accomplished yet that kind of annoys you that you haven't done yet we had one that was what is the challenge you are most proud of overcoming one of my favorites was what do you want to be remembered for or we would often ask it as what if you had to write your own eulogy what would it say and so it's pretty cool you know and, and yeah. i'm telling you we were getting people from like all the way from like college age to 60 plus years old who were yeah. getting a lot of value out of this yeah, I can imagine because those are not questions you just ask someone on a daily basis. So they definitely go deeper than what you're used to. Yeah, exactly. and, es and especially because you mentioned the eulogy question. So if I would ask you that, what would you say? Because I'm sure you thought about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So for me, it's going to sound a little bit like tilted because I know what my why is. So it's going to like, you're like, oh, of course you'd say that. But it's it's like, because of this is how, is help, how I helped get to the why. But I really want to be remembered for a person who helped create an outlet for others to get their voice out. Someone who helped others communicate themselves in a way that felt like authentic and true and genuine to them. And as someone who, you know, really like wanted everyone to feel like they could have a voice and have a say. Yeah. Which also kind of explains like something like the, the causes I care about. Yeah. Right. Like I'm, I really like try to champion diversity and inclusion. Why? Well, because I don't think it's right. Like the way I, the lens I look at it through, like a lot of people don't think it's right, but the lens I look at it through is, well, there's a, there are sections of society 
the working workplace environment that don't have a fair voice, that don't have a say in what's happening. Yeah, and that's sure. the lens that I look at diversity and inclusion through. And uh, that company didn't really work out at some point. And I remember no, did not. The last time we talked, you said you were also going quite through an emotional period after. So can you tell us maybe a little bit of how, yeah, what kind of thoughts you were confronted with in that period and how you ended up at Startup Hypeman? We had a really good piece of like intellectual property with that, with that uh, workshop thing. Doing the workshops wasn't scalable. So we said, all right, well, let's, you know, we, we started to learn about the whole like online course model. And then we also started, honestly, we also started to teach more about personal branding besides just the elevator pitch. Um, but it was really all, it was all from like a lens of like personal development and authenticity. So we didn't teach personal branding from like a make your LinkedIn profile have these buzzwords on it thing or make your picture look like this. It was more like your personal brand is a combination of like what you believe and say about yourself, who you surround yourself with, and the things you choose to work on. So we started also teaching those elements too through workshops. And then we were like, okay, well, you know, we had learned about this idea of like online courses. So we said, okay, let's try that. And so we built this course called uh, Discover Your Inner Awesome, which, you know, the, the workshops we were doing were called Discover Your Inner Awesome and The Art of Awesome. So we built this Discover Your Inner Awesome masterclass as an online thing, that's what it was called. And it was like an eight-week program that went through all of those components we were teaching in person, but more blown out with like worksheets and, you know, Facebook group, that kind of thing. But we just never got like real traction with it because we had a like identity crisis issue of not being able to like pick a market and go deep on it. Yeah. And that was really my fault more than Martin's. I don't think I was mature enough yet to really be good at entrepreneurship. Uh-huh. Not that I'm good now, I'm still learning, but. I just don't think there was any way with any type of business I could have been successful at that age because I was not mentally there yet to make it successful. And what because was, I thought, yeah, so... What was missing? I don't know. I think it was like I was still in like the, I need to get all the ideas out of my head stage. So I very much had shiny object syndrome. Very much was like, you know, if you, if you think about like, like our sales page for that online course, it was develop your personal brand, figure out your why for who this is for you if you are trying to get a new job this is for you if you have a job you like but you want to move up in the company this is for you if you're an entrepreneur right this is for you if you're trying to start that creative project like figure out your side passion so it was like well you can't like, it's hard to market to all of those with with a single message and that was ultimately like i think kind of the death of us and we didn't you know there's other like operational things we didn't do well but you know i think just being too scattered killed us. Mm -hmm. So we had to shut that down and it was not easy. You definitely take a ego hit with it because you tie so much of your own identity into that thing you were building and that people know you for. Like, you know, we got to a point around Chicago anyway, where people were like, oh, you're the idea lemon guys. At one point we had done like a road trip around the country with our podcast. And there were people who were like, Oh, cool. I get to meet you guys. I've been, I've been listening to your show or like I've been reading your newsletter. Right. And it's, yeah, it feels good to hear that. But more than anything, it's like people associate you with that brand. Totally. And so then to be like, well, this didn't work. We're shutting it down. It feels like you're telling people I am a failure at life, which is hard to swallow. Yeah. So, you know, at first, actually, 
because Martin was the first one to be like, I don't want to do this anymore. He's like, we don't have a plan. We're running out of money and it's not going to happen with this brand. I just don't see it happening. And so initially I, I was like, I mean, I wasn't taken aback, but I wasn't surprised, I should say, but I was just like, oh my God, like this is really happening. And so we had conversations initially about like, maybe I buy him out and do it solo myself because I thought there was a lot of value in that brand name. Ultimately, we decided to just dissolve the business entirely. And again, it was tough to do that for the reasons I just said, but I remember being okay with doing it because I had a conversation with someone else I trusted when I was thinking about, should I do a buyout or dissolve? Yeah. And I was like, hey, if I had to kill the company, how would that change your impression of me? And he was like, He's like, dude, companies fail all the time. What are you talking about? He's like, no one cares. And that was like my like, okay, you know what? It's going to be okay. And then from those ashes is where Startup Hype Man came about. Through doing Idea Lemon, we had just done, we would gotten really good at networking and meeting a lot of people, especially people in the entrepreneurial community. So someone who was in my Rolodex, so to speak, had reached out because we got people started to know us for these elevator pitches. So it was the CEO of a group called Bunker Labs, which is a accelerator, a nonprofit accelerator for military veterans and active military and their family if they are starting or growing their businesses. So he had reached out and he was like, hey, uh, we have a cohort coming in. The last cohort just didn't do well on their pitch night. Do you think you could work with our next cohort on their pitches and like helping them with their pitch decks? And I was like, oh yeah, totally. That sounds awesome. And so they, we figured out like a small consulting contract for that. Now, truth be told, when I got off the phone, I immediately started Google searching, like, how do you build a pitch deck? Because <laughs> I had done that before. But very quickly, I was like, oh, okay, I get the general framework. And it, it follows what I know about storytelling. You just got to like plug in these components. And it was cool because for like three months, I had this sandbox of 20 different entrepreneurs to test out the strategies that I was figuring out. But also... I found you could take a lot from personal branding and apply it to company branding. You just you know swap out I for we. Uh, and a lot of it worked. I scrapped the stuff that didn't. And then I just started to like fine-tune my own strategies over time. I can tell you today, I am 100 times better at figuring out an investor pitch deck than I was in 2000, end of 2016 when I yeah. was doing that Bunker Labs thing. Because I took it upon myself to go through a deep self-learning process of the startup ecosystem. How does funding work? Um, how do, like, what are the things investors are looking for, et cetera, right? So I, I know how like the larger, I guess kind of coming back to that, you know, what my dad instilled in me years ago, it was like, you can't just know the fringe stuff. You have to know like how the system operates. And now I know how the system operates. So it's not just like, I know how to tell a story. It's like, I know how to tell a story within the confines of exactly what you're trying to accomplish within the ecosystem of you're doing it in. So that's, that's, that's where I, you know, I guess graduated towards. And then over time, I grew Startup Hype Man into being more of a, uh, not just the investor stuff, but working with growth stage companies, working closely with their sales teams on their sales messaging, their sales presentations, their demo calls. And because you're working with startups pretty much every day, can you give us maybe a brief overview of what the ideal pitch deck uh, should look like and how you should approach a pitch ideally? Yeah. So here's the thing. Anyone can Google pitch deck outline. So I don't need to cover that. Like and people know, like have a problem, lead it into a solution, that kind of thing. Googling a 10 slide or 15 slide pitch deck outline is, is easy. 
the things I'll say that make your that turn it into a story and make it attractive and more investable is can you make your pitch less about the individual product you have created or are creating and more a presentation that is your point of view on the industry that you're in, where the industry is headed in your estimation. And because the industry is headed in that way, it necessitates a product to help accelerate it in that direction, which you happen to have. So it is less about the mechanics of how your product works, and it is more a presentation that is your point of view on the direction the industry is supposed to be moving in. And I also read in one of your posts that you should stop thinking business and be more like an entertainer and act like you're selling out Madison Square Garden. So do you have some tips on how to entertain better during a pitch? Yeah, you've done your homework. Yeah, so my base philosophy, and I think this is kind of what makes what I do different than perhaps others who do this work as well, is I use the philosophies of entertainment as the foundation for everything. There's your marketing and sales psychology involved as well, but it is a, a groundwork that is borrowed from the world of entertainment because an entertainer's goal and why I tell people stop thinking like an entrepreneur, stop thinking like an executive and start thinking like an entertainer is because an entertainer's goal is to form an emotional connection with their audience, get their audience to feel something. So that idea of think like an entertainer and sell out Madison Square Garden, if you take the rapper Jay-Z He had a song lyric. The song is actually crazy now, almost 20 years old. It came out in 2003. He said, so he compares himself to two rappers, Talib Kweli and Common, also known as Common Sense, who are more like underground rappers that, unless you're like a really big hip hop fan, you probably don't know them, but you know Jay-Z, like everyone knows Jay-Z. Yeah. Right. And so he says, if skills sold, truth be told, I'd probably be lyrically Talib Kweli. Truthfully, I want to rhyme like Common Sense but I did five mil and I ain't been rhyming like common sense. And what he's saying is, hey, like I have the, I could totally be the most socially conscious, lyrically dense rapper out there. I have that capability. If skills sold, truth be told, I would be as good as Talib Kweli. But he realized if he was really going to make it big, cut through the underground and make it mainstream and be the success that he is today, he had to meet their audience where they are. So he says that, truthfully, I want to rhyme like common sense. I did five mil. And he, he says, I dumbed down for my audience and doubled my dollars, right? So you don't have to use the word dumb down, really, or think about less about dumb down. But he's saying, hey, I figured out my audience needed, and I gave them that. And mm -hmm. because I gave them that, that's when my sales went through the roof, and I became this brand. And that's the same notion that not enough companies are doing. Companies are trying to be the lyrically intricate rapper. Hey, we've got... Like our, our product has this thing, but it also has this thing and it also has this thing, right? And it becomes this like parade of features, a highlight reel of features, which is not what your audience wants to hear. Your audience wants you to give them something that makes them feel a certain way. So you have to dumb down, quote unquote, for your audience, meet them where they are, tell them the things that are relevant and think more from their point of view. That's what the entertainer is doing. They are seeing and speaking from the audience's point of view. And do you know how to best make them feel? Yeah, it is. I mean, it's a process of putting them first, right? You don't matter really in the equation. So I'll just kind of do a quick positioning exercise. I created this strategy I call the superhero strategy to develop positioning. 
the idea is that every startup needs to look at themselves as a superhero. Mm-hmm. Why? Because superheroes help and save people. Your company helps and saves people from something. It doesn't have to be from a burning building, but it's from some issue that they're experiencing today. Specifically, I, I like to use Batman because Batman did not have mythical powers. He was someone who fell into a lot of capital and had access to technology, and he merged those two things to serve the public good. Sounds like a company to me. Capital plus technology equals serving public. Batman doesn't come in and save Gotham on a sunny day. It's like, you know, it's nice outside. People have their kids at the park, dog taking, taking a dog for a walk. You don't see Batman swoop in and be like, whoa, I'm here to serve you, right? Lego Batman might do that, but the actual Batman would not. Because <laughs> if he did, people would be like, uh, what, who, what are you doing here? Like, stay the hell away from my children. You know, like they'd be totally freaked out by him. Instead, it requires Joker blowing up the hospital, the bank being robbed, someone getting mugged on the street. That's when Batman comes in, when there's something happening. A lot of companies try to be Batman and save Gotham on a sunny day. They swoop in too soon with, hey, I'm here, listen to me, here's what I have to offer you. So the superhero strategy dictates that in order for a superhero to exist, in order for your company to exist, there has to first be three things in place. Number one is a damsel or a dude in distress. Number two is a village on fire. When you have those, then you can activate a superpower of some kind. And with those three in place, then the superhero can come in and save the day. So your person in distress, your damsel, your dude in distress is your target audience. The village on fire is the core problem they are experiencing. The superpower is your approach to that problem. And the superhero is your solution. You build out positioning in that way. And then from that, you can take it to develop a very clear, succinct, and impactful elevator pitch, which follows another formula I created called que pasa, which que pasa in Spanish means what's up. That's what you're doing. You're telling people what's up with your company. So you take elements from that positioning, you trickle it down, you figure out the way to make it sound good, but you do it in the format of que pasa, P-A-S-A, problem, approach, solution, action. And in building your positioning, the superhero strategy, and then your pitch with the que pasa, effectively what you're doing is creating messaging, whether it's verbal or written, that starts by generating context for the listener and frame of reference, but most importantly, starts with empathy. It starts with them in mind. It's acknowledging some issue with what's happening today for them. And because of that, that's why you exist. And so when you communicate like that, people are hanging on to every word. So that way, when you do show up, you are truly the superhero because they're like, oh my God, you can fix this thing versus why are you here? I don't need you. Yeah. All right. Okay. I like that story. And uh, I have one more question. So during your TED talk, you mentioned that we should shift our mindset from, but I'm not to because I am. And I'm curious to get to know your experience when it comes to that. So for example, if you look at back at your last year, where there are certain situations that that especially helped you? Honestly, most recently with the pandemic, very few businesses escaped taking at least some kind of hit. Um, for me, I had in a, in a 24-hour span, I had a lot of committed money like in contracts from customers just like gone. <laughs> they emailed me or called me and were like, hey, we need to put this on pause temporarily for I don't know how long. 
Yeah. So I took, you know, a day to feel sorry for myself. I think the but I'm not mindset for that is, oh my God, my customers are canceling. I should do something about this, but I'm not in control of the situation. I'm not, you know, I, I can't control this pandemic. But the because I am, which was, you know, in sort of subconsciously the mindset I had to adopt, you know, I took a day to feel sorry for myself. And I was like, okay, how do I figure this out? What can I do? You know, I ended up with, with some of them, I ended up saying, or excuse me, with one of them, I was like, let's figure out a, let's, let's, let's rework the agreement. So you're not tied down for multiple months. We'll make it a month to month commitment for the time being. We'll shift more towards this aspect of your business. So it's near term impact. Um, and then I looked at, okay, how can I serve others in the market right now? And I know how to figure out messaging and positioning. So I, over the past couple of months, shifted where I can help towards, let me help you augment your own messaging to avoid a sales freeze right now. So that way people don't just tune you out completely. You still get some leads in your pipeline and some deal flow happening. So the because I am mindset from that originally was, hey, I can figure this out because I am smart enough to assess a situation and figure out where can I still, you know, generate traction more or less. And it's been going pretty well, you know. I've, I've minimized the losses as a result. And more than I, and to be honest, it also, it kind of forced me to create some new material that's really good uh, and is helping a lot of companies. Amazing. Thank you. Do you still have a last key takeaway, a personal insight that you would like to share that helped you grow? I think, so when I was a little bit younger, I think my ego was too big. I think the more you can, the more you can do to acknowledge when your ego is coming in play and not let your decisions be driven by that or cloud your decision-making, the better off you will be. So how do you mitigate the ego? Make sure you're talking to other people about the things you're doing and not just getting their input, but actually listening to it. When I was younger, I was getting input, but I was like, yeah, but you don't know what I'm, what I'm doing, right? Don't do the, yeah, to people. Obviously, it's got to be people you trust and those who you would take advice from, but actually listen to what they're saying and know that they're not crazy. Yeah. Especially if they're a little bit older than you. They've probably seen or been through some element of what you're doing and they, you know, they know what they're doing. <laughs> they know what they're saying anyway. And how can people contact you? My website is startuphypeman.com. Um, if you want to join my newsletter, you can. My LinkedIn is linkedin.com slash in slash Rajiv Nathan. I'm like hyperactive on LinkedIn, almost to an annoying degree. Twitter, Instagram, at Startup Hype Man. And then um, I host a podcast myself interviewing startup founders on how they're growing their companies. And that is simply Startup Hype Man, the podcast available through iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, all the, all the podcasting platforms. Perfect. Thank you so much for sharing today. And for everyone who's watching or listening, if you could find any value from today's conversation and had insights that somehow helped you grow, then please make sure to share this episode with your friends on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, so we can see what your favorite takeaways were. Thank you so much for listening. If you don't want to miss out on future episodes, please subscribe to the podcast on your preferred platform and be sure to leave a review on iTunes or Google Play. And check out the show notes for a deeper dive on what you heard today.